Good morning again. As always, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, where we'll be spending our time this morning. We get to congratulate ourselves for having made it through one chapter of Philippians, and uh, we'll keep tracking uh, all the way through. If you'd like to use one of the church Bibles, you'll find our reading on page 980, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. There's a theologian by the name of J.I. Packer who wrote a book entitled Knowing God. And at the uh, outset of his book, he says something to the effect of every clown has longed to play Hamlet, and so I have longed to write a book about God. And I think opening Philippians 2, you'll know that just as every clown longs to be in Hamlet, so every preacher longs to preach on Philippians chapter 2. It's one of the most majestic, powerful, penetrating passages in all of Scripture, and I think you'll get a sense of that as we read together. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let's bow together and pray. Father, we thank you for the precious gift of the Bible, for the way in which you have chosen to reveal yourself in it. We thank you that as we turn to the pages of Philippians that we find a Lord who is humble, a wonderful Savior who empties himself on behalf of his own. And so it's our prayer this morning that as we turn to your word that you would change our hearts, that you would give us such a vision of Jesus in all of his humble glory that you would mark us off as a people, others-focused, humble, walking in partnership for the gospel. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight, the eyes of many Americans will turn to the Super Bowl, and many a water cooler conversation tomorrow will be about the big game. And I'm willing to bet that as you talk to your friends or your coworkers or fellow students tomorrow, that one of the words that will not be used to describe what we see tonight is the word humility. Reminds me of a lecture I once saw David Brooks give. David Brooks is a journalist for the New York Times. He was addressing a group of Christians uh, through an organization called Q. And Brooks is recounting the story of on a Sunday evening as he's going home from the office, he turns on NPR and realizes that they air old radio programs on Sunday evening. And he came across a program called Command Performance. Command Performance was something that took place back in the 1940s. It was used to entertain Americans serving in World War II. And the particular episode that Brooks came on that night aired on VJ Day, just hours after Japan had announced their surrender. The host of the program was Bing Crosby. And as Crosby came on the air, he said to the listeners, we've just found out that we've won the war. But I guess we're not too proud. We're just humble and glad that we got the win. As Brooks pulls into his driveway and goes into his home, he turns on Sunday night football to see what now is all too common. Quarterback with a three-step drop throws to a wide receiver for a simple screenplay. The receiver's tackled after a gain of two yards. And in Brooks' own description, the defensive player does what every athlete does in a moment of supreme personal accomplishment. He does a victory dance in honor of himself. And it occurred to me, says Brooks, that I'd just seen a bigger victory dance after a two-yard gain than I'd just heard after winning World War II. And in his analysis of everything that he encounters on that Sunday, he concludes that American culture has shifted over generations from being one of self-effacing humility to one of self-congratulating pride. So what then of the culture in the church? It doesn't take much observation to understand that the me-first culture in the world around us finds itself infiltrating the church all too easily. Personal agendas, church division, all evidences of that old, old sin, pride. Brothers and sisters, very few sins will destroy our partnership in the gospel like pride. And so what Paul does here in Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11, this absolutely majestic passage, is he tells us that as those who have come to know Christ by faith, we are to pursue unity through humility. If you look down at the passage in front of you in your Bible, you'll notice that this text really splits for us right down the middle in a very nice and neat structure. In verses 1 through 4, what Paul does here is he urges us to pursue unity through humility because of our Christian experience. 
And then in verses 5 through 11, he shifts his focus. It's just a different angle on the same theme. And he tells us to pursue unity through humility because of our perfect example. What are we to do this morning with Philippians chapter 2? We are to pursue unity through, through humility. First of all, because of our Christian experience. Now, Paul, throughout the letter to the Philippians, has been urging his readers to be unified in the gospel on the strength of what's true of them in Christ. So last week we saw in chapter 127 that Paul tells them, in light of their heavenly citizenship, that they are to stand firm in one spirit and with one mind to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so here in chapter 2, he begins to do the same thing. But he leverages, you'll notice, the subjective experience that is ours in Christ as the motivation for our unity and humility. Now I want to say two things pastorally before we even dive into the words that Paul writes here. And the first is that for many of us, we often think of our experience subjectively with Jesus as something that's personal and private. But for Paul, our experience of grace is meant to urge us into, push us into, the fellowship of Christian people within the context of a local church. It's personal, but it's never private. And secondly, what I want to say is that for some of us of a certain temperament, as we hear Paul talk about the subjective and deep, rich experience of grace in Christ, some of us will begin to think that we don't have those experiences as often as we'd like. As so we begin to despair. What I want to say to you, if that's you this morning, that the thing to do when you find yourself in that place is not to obsess about the experience, but rather to meditate on the reality that creates it. So that feelings flow from faith and not the other way around. But nevertheless, Paul leverages the personal experience of every Christian to urge us into unity. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ. We might break the word down simply just for the sake of our understanding to literally mean that which creates courage in you. In courage meant. The word carries the idea of strengthening. It's that realization that you have every now and then when weighed down by a sense of your guilt and your sin. The glory that pierces through when you realize that God will never, if you're trusting in Jesus, deal with you on the basis of your own performance, but on the merits of Jesus' righteousness and his atonement the work that he's accomplished for you on the cross, that emboldens us, doesn't it? Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, complete my joy by being fully united. If there is any comfort from love, those rare moments when 
reading our Bibles or being encouraged in the gospel or having a conversation with another Christian, we get that sense of God's actual love flowing to us. Those moments where God's love breaks through the darkness and pierces our hearts and our souls. As one young man emailed me this week, he was being encouraged by a friend to look to Jesus as his Savior, and he was made aware that God actually loves him. Is there any comfort in that? Then complete my joy, Paul says, by being fully united. If there is any participation in the Spirit, that's our word for partnership. If you have ever come to realize that the Holy Spirit ministers to men and women by taking us out of a state of deadness and sin and opening our eyes, uniting us to Jesus by faith and then to one another in the community of faith, participation, partnership in the Spirit. If you've ever recognized that your fellow brothers and sisters are just that, your brothers and sisters complete my joy by being fully united. If, Paul says, there's any uh, affection and sympathy, those moments where you understand God's tender mercy towards you, His compassion for you, and it enables you to look out of yourself and to others and view them with that same sort of mercy. If there's any flavor of mercy in you, Paul says, complete my joy. And this is a wonderful approach. It's masterful. It's the kind of approach that a parent might have with his child, a mom or dad who pulls their son or daughter near and, and says, do I love you? Do I care for you? Do I provide for you? Are you safe? Then clean your room and quit hitting your brother. <laughs> Not because you have to earn my love, but because you've received it. Because what Paul understands so, so wonderfully is that the only thing that will ever create Christian character in any of us is the Christian message itself. Paul says, because this is true of you, be fully united, complete my joy, verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What a vision for what church might look like. Now it's important for us to note here that Paul is not urging us towards uniformity. One of the wonders of the church is that we're so different. But he's urging unity. Not that we'd like the same music, not that we would have the same opinions on politics, not that we would enjoy the same food, but that we would be united having the same mindset. And for Paul, this mindset is expressed most fully in verse 27 of chapter 1 as striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, a passionate promotion of Jesus in our community. But what it also means, what it also looks like, according to the text in front of us, is that we would be entirely others-focused. You see how radical Christianity is? It urges us not to be self-centered, but to be others-focused. And we know this because Paul explains the way that we would have the same mindset in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish 
ambition. The sort of selfish promotion that urges us into positions of power or notoriety, a look-at-me kind of attitude towards life. Aristotle, before the New Testament was written, used to use this word in the context of political advance. Now, obviously, the context here isn't that of politics, but the vice is the same. And it's so obvious how this kind of selfish ambition will tear apart a community. I mean, did you watch the State of the Union? I watched that, and you're going to say, Wilmer's lost his mind, and I lost my mind a long time ago, but the only thing I could think of the entire time I was watching it is, I can't imagine standing in front of that group and preaching. Looking back at those faces? And that's not an indictment on either side of the aisle. That's just making the point. The thing was divided. No selfish ambition. No conceit. A sort of over-inflated view of self that believes all of the newspaper clippings about myself. The sort of drunken stupor. The being drunk on self-esteem and vanity. Paul says, do nothing from that attitude. But instead, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Now, we get humility all wrong. Because the way that we normally conceive of humility is not of thinking as others as more important than me, but as thinking of people as better than me. That's true humility. Friends, if you think about it for a moment, if I think of other people as better than me, I will either stand in awe of them or I'll be completely deflated in their presence. Paul does not say think of others as better than yourself. He says think of others as more significant than yourself. A sort of humble brag that deflects attention from myself and inflates someone to sort of be self-deprecating towards myself. I love the way that Tim Keller describes real humility. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or even thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, verse 4, Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The gospel doesn't cause us to ignore ourselves, but the gospel urges us to be others-focused, not only myself, but others. There is that wonderful moment, isn't there, when you're aboard the plane and you're just about to take off. There's a moment of fear and trembling for me, I have to confess. But there is that moment where the stewardess comes along and says, if this plane should go down. Make sure you put the oxygen mask on yourself, but then also make sure you help others who haven't gotten it on yet. Look after not only your own interests, Paul says, but also the interests of others. Why? Because you've experienced the grace of God in Christ. The gospel urges us into the fellowship of faith Counting others is more significant than ourselves. But secondly, majestically, pursue unity through humility, Paul says, because of your perfect example. Friends, some people will tell us that 
verses 5 to 11 is a pre-Pauline hymn or a story that Paul takes and uses for his purpose here in Philippians 2. I don't know if that's true. What I do know is that this passage is amazing. I want you to notice in verse 5 the striking command that Paul gives us. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or as the Christian Standard Bible translates, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. What Paul does here is he takes us out of the realm of our subjective experience and places us right down in the objective truth of the gospel. He says, look to Jesus. See what Jesus has done. And try for a moment, in the face of it all, to be focused on yourself. He says, have this attitude that is in Christ. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That language there of being in the form of God carries the idea of being in the very essence of God, having all of the characteristics of divinity. It's the clearest possible statement that Jesus is God. Being in the form of God, Paul says, he did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, held onto, to be viewed as something that should be tight-fistedly held, to, used for, to be used for his own advantage. But rather, he poured his divinity out. He used his divinity. He exercised his godness in such a way that it benefits others. Brothers and sisters, there is no possible illustration that comes anywhere close. The only thing that even I, I could even imagine is thinking of a young man that I once interviewed for an internship at Parkside who had graduated and with great grades from the University of Kentucky. He was slated to work for Ernst & Young and make a lot of money and gave it all up to train to be a pastor and to make some money using his gifts, his drive, his talents for the benefit of others. Here Paul says, Jesus, who is in the very form of God, who is God, rather than clinging to his deity and using it to his advantage, he shows us what God is really like by emptying himself. Now we tell young men who are training to preach the Bible that the text of Scripture is like a line. And you can go above the line and say more than the, the, the text says, and you can go below the line and say less than the text says. And if this passage is a line, it is a tightrope. And we have to be very careful that we don't say more than it says. No foolish talk that Jesus somehow emptied himself of divinity. Look carefully with me at the passage, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. 
the emptying of Christ is not a getting rid of his divinity. It's putting on humanity. So that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He humbled himself. That's what Paul says. As God, he emptied himself. As man, verse 8, he humbled himself. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A couple of weeks ago, Kelly and I took Henry to a doctor's appointment in Cranberry. Some of you will have been in this, this uh, office. There's a children's uh, doctor's office, and there's a door for the parents, and there's a smaller door for the children. And when Jesus entered the world, friends, he came through the smaller door. He came through the lower door. Not only emptying himself by putting on humanity, but by humbling himself to obedience all the way through to death. Obeying every requirement of the law on your behalf and even the law's prescription of punishment for sin. He died. But do you see what Paul says here? He says Jesus not only was obedient to death, but he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why does Paul do that? Part of learning to read the Bible well is asking good questions. Why does Paul feel the need to clarify the kind of death? He humbled himself to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why would he stress that? John Stott, who once wrote a book called The Cross of Christ, incidentally, David Brooks from our intro, once wrote a piece for the Times on John Stott. He said if evangelicals could uh, elect a pope, they would elect John Stott. Powerful minister of the gospel. And in his book, The Cross of Christ, he describes the practice of crucifixion. He says, crucifixion seems to have been invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and taken over from them by both Greeks and Romans. It is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victim could suffer for days before dying. And when the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided that they were also slaves foreigners, or other non-persons. He was obedient to death. But not only death, death on a cross. One of the only means of crucifixion that you and I might say was properly inhumane. Reserved for non-persons. Friends, the force, the rhetorical force and the aim of all that Paul is saying is almost so obvious we don't even really need to mention it. But he's looking at us and he's saying, dear brothers and sisters, it is very difficult to hold on to your agenda and your preferences in the face of a God who lets go of his. It is very difficult 
to be self-congratulating and proud in the face of, hear this, the humility of God. The humility of God. Jesus, as God, emptied himself. Jesus, as man, humbled himself. And verse 9, God highly exalts him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In light of Jesus' humility, God has placed him on the highest throne with the highest name, so that, Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Your teachers will bow the knee before Jesus. Your doctors will bow the knee before Jesus. Your neighbors will bow the knee before Jesus. Your friends, your relatives, historical people who have long since passed will bow the knee before Jesus. People who have not yet been born will bow the knee before Jesus. Caesar, who is at this point considered Lord, will bow the knee before Jesus. There is no one greater. And look at this beautiful beautiful narrative that Jesus goes from the highest place to the lowest place and then right back to the highest place again. So that those of us who humbly bow the knee, trusting in him, will one day with him also be exalted. One of the young men that I was closest to at Parkside, he worked at Stouffer's. Again, very bright young thing, talented, driven, loved Jesus with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. What Andy would do is he would create some of the frozen items that you find in the grocery store all the time. You create the, the recipes for them and prepare them. And as he was trying to invent and unleash this new recipe, every turn he kept getting rejected. When it finally started to go through, a new CEO came in and rejected it. Someone pulled Andy aside and they said, listen. One of these days you're going to have to recognize that if you want to get ahead in this company, if you want to get ahead in life, if you really want to make something of yourself, you need to assert yourself. You need to be confident. You need to be proud. You need to go get it. You see what Paul's doing? He's pulling the rug right out from under that way of thinking. And you know, the way to true greatness is the pathway of humility. What's good enough for God is good enough for his people. One day, there will be a vindication where Jesus is, is worshipped by every tribe, tongue, and nation, every single human person who's ever lived, and his people will gather around him and be found in him. You know, David Brooks is right about most of what he said. Where he's wrong is that he, he, he looks at the spectrum of, of humility and pride and he, he looks at it over generational lines from 1940 to 2018. Friends, pride is as old as the fall. And the only cure is our humble Savior who comes and bows his knee in humble service before his people so that one day 
all will bow before him and confess his glory. Here's the beauty. You and I get to do that now. We don't have to wait. All it takes is the humility to come before the Lord who washes feet and humbly confess, Lord, I am a sinner and you are the Savior. You emptied yourself by becoming a human. You humbled yourself by dying on the cross and now you are highly exalted and I turn from my sin and trust in you. The gateway into the kingdom is low. But one day, all who kneel will be pulled up to be glorified in and with Jesus. What a gospel. What a humble Savior. What a glorious Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we feel, uh, even as we hear the words of Philippians 2 ringing in our ears, that we've just walked where angels tread, dare to tread, fear to tread. And yet we thank you that you have revealed yourself in this way to us. We pray that we would see in the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ a pattern for our lives as brothers and sisters here at First Baptist. We ask that you would help us to complete the joy of the apostle by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We pray that as people in our community talk about our church, that they would say, oh, that's the place where they love one another. That's the place where they serve one another. That's the place where they prefer one another. All because of what Jesus has done for them. So Father, make us this kind of people for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.